Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 7th of February. Tyler is here with me. Tyler, uh, how are you doing? Good, man. Uh, it's, you know, sunny out in Maine. It's not dreary for once. I went for a kind of snowy, wintry run, so feeling uh, accomplished. I at least did something today, so not too bad. Yeah, March is when. When does the snow all start to melt? There, I forget. It's like sometime in late March or something like that. There's yeah, a period, like there's like a March. black puddle period that is like just miserable, where you just mud season. You they walk. call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's just gross puddles everywhere. Did you end up seeing the Grammys at all? Did you watch the Grammys? No, I watched the Tracy Chapman video that everyone else watched, and I right. was excited that Killer Mike won Best Rap Album. But no, that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I wanted to ask you two things about that. You have enough context then, because that's all I watch too, actually. And then I watch like Jay's speech. Nice. At the, end. the first is that I, you know, like I thought that it was, uh, do you have thoughts about like this Luke Combs thing, right? The Tracy Chapman, Luke Combs thing, because it became this like controversy for a little bit, but I don't think, I think it was one of those controversies that wasn't really a controversy, but maybe two people wrote about it. And so it seemed like a controversy, but like the covering of the song, right? Um, and then was there enough credit given? Now, at this point, I think everyone will agree that enough credit was given because Tracy Chapman was on the Grammys. But I don't know. It was weird. It was like one of these things where I always want to ask people who are about your age, because I feel like for me, it was like that song was so ubiquitous when I was growing up, where I think it, for a lot of people, it was maybe even regardless of age, but certainly, you know, in the 80s and 90s. But um, I don't know. It's weird. I didn't like the idea that that song would somehow in any way ever be dis detached from Tracy Chapman it was such a weird claim to me. I feel like it's like, I don't know, like a fucking Beatles song or something, you know, where it's like it would feel really weird to um, make the case that it was like not sufficiently accredited or too detached from its original context that it was obscure. I think that's that's really preposterous. And I'm not even like a um, main dude of Tracy Chapman. I love, she did an awesome, um, she sat in with Buddy Guy on a um, album, the like mid 2000s. Um, and they did a cover of Ain't No Sunshine, which is fantastic. Um, so I know some of her stuff, but I'm not like a, an aficionado to be sure. But I, yeah, I think that whole thing's preposterous. I don't know. Okay. Well, look, my sense of it is that I felt like there was, um, I don't know, it was just a nice moment. And then, uh, and that, Everything was fine in the end, which it should have been. And it was like, well, everyone likes the song. Everyone likes Tracy Chapman. And so maybe there's no problem and everybody can just chill. And I think that maybe like four years ago, this is in the context of our conversation with Musa last week about peak woke, which yeah. is that I think like four years ago, there would have been 15 articles written about how like Luke Combs didn't deserve to be on that stage or, you know, like in hyper analyzing some sort of moment that happened. And now there just isn't right and totally. like everybody's able to do it i feel like we've made some progress on all of that right i like feel like that, most of yeah. what i saw was positive where people were yeah. like yeah this is great and like a lot of people pointed out he seemed like so excited to be sharing his stage with her like he seemed to have i know yeah so like i i just thought it was kind of sweet i don't know 
Yeah, he played it off perfectly, honestly, because that song was such a hit for him and it made him like a household name. And yeah. obviously he's just doing it. He like it's not the cover is not interesting. There's no elevation of the song. It's just like, hey, I'm Luke Combs. I'm just going to sing <laughs> the Tracy Chapman version. <laughs> and and it's actually so similar that actually I think that there might be an argument as to like, OK, why did this song get covered by this guy in this way? You in know, like way, at least yeah. make it like interesting. Throw some like, I don't know, like what steel guitars in or something like that. Whatever one does. Right. Totally. But um, right, right, yeah. (laughs) Make it some jugs, you know. Make it like super, (laughs) make it it honky tonk in some sort of way. But he just like kind of played an acoustic guitar in the same way. But um, I don't know. I thought it was a nice moment. I love that song. I love Tracy Chapman. One of my parents' stories about my childhood, or that is that when we were living in you know near Harvard Square when I was a child that. We would routinely see Tracy Chapman busking in Harvard Square, um, which is how she got her start. Yeah. The story around her is kind of wild, which is that she was a student at Tufts and she was busking in Harvard Square. And then Brian Koppelman, do you know who he is? No. He wrote the film Rounders and he does like a lot of, uh, he like has his own podcast and everything like that. He wrote Billions. He's like the main, Mm. uh, he and his buddy are the main writers of Billions. He, his dad was uh, like one of the head executives at a record company and Brian told him you have to check out this Tracy Chapman person at Tuff, who's at Tufts with me. And then everything just like exploded almost immediately off, you know, because she was so young when she, when that song came out. That's cool. Anyway. Um, all right, moving on. Let's move on to our actual topic today, which is the uh, Apple Vision Pro. Now, I wanted to talk about this and I will explain why, but you also seem excited to talk about it. I totally. want to talk about it because I have a friend who um, I will say is quite tech credulous, not in a dumb way. He's a very smart guy, but he like, you know, he was like AI when ChatGPT came out, he was like, the world has changed, right? And so he's the only person I know who actually bought the Apple Vision Oh, Pro. he has them? Yeah, yeah, he bought it. Yeah, he's, he works at like a hedge fund or whatever, so he can afford That's it. That's great. But- I texted him yesterday and I was like, how is it? And he said, eh, it's, it's not that great. That's awesome. And so um, I was curious about it because I was like, well, you know, like everyone is having an insane meltdown about this, either good or bad, right? People are being like, this is the greatest thing ever. People are like, this is the stupidest thing ever. And when th- people are that split on something, I think it's a good thing to talk about and also i just think it looks really funny it's like weird heavy ski goggles on your head but um i don't know what you, what 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 do, you, what do you think about this product that apple has released yeah man i don't know the um i guess my first reaction to it is the tech doesn't seem that great like it seems clumsy um and i you know partly wonder if it's going to go the way of google glasses but on the other hand like the vision of sort of the future of tech that it gives you is really dark, which I'm not the only person to point out, obviously. Um, but, you know, a thing that struck me watching these the videos of them, you know, there are all these videos on YouTube and Twitter and everywhere of people like trying them. And one of the things that struck me is they're all showing you how like, look, I have my work email up here and I have this like work Excel sheet over here. And then I have like, I'm watching like Jurassic Park over here. And then I have this like video game and I can move my head. Right. Um, And, you know, one of the things I think about a lot is the way that the smartphone, and this is something plenty of people say, but like the smartphone totally exploded the boundary between work life and home life and private life in the office, you know, because your boss can reach you 24 seven. And, um, 
you know, this seems to me to herald um, if it the tech becomes better, which it might not. Like right now, it doesn't look very good and it looks clumsy. But um, you can see a road um, where if this becomes more ubiquitous, there's like something really dark about like this experience of reality in which like your work life and your like entertainment life and your personal life, because you can also see through them to the room around you, right, is just bleeding together entirely. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I There is like a kind of, speaking of labor, there's like a work labor dystopia feeling to it that I had that I think is just going to exacerbate pre-existing erosions of, you know, work-life balance that began with the smartphone. Um, and, you know, maybe the tech sucks and that's not going to happen. But um, I was struck by how many people were so stoked to like talk about how they can like move back and forth between their email and like playing some uh, dumb no. video game, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just watched one where a guy was watching the NBA, you know, and he's like, and then he had Twitter open to follow NBA tweets um, off to the side. And I, what I couldn't figure out, I was like, I do this every single night. Like this is basically what I do after my kids go to sleep. I watch basketball and I look at tweets and I send dumb NBA takes on Twitter. It's like my favorite thing to do. And I don't have a problem with it right now. Like I don't, it works totally fine, right? Like I don't need um, to put on a headset and look at, to the left, I can actually just look down at my phone. Yeah, I don't know. I guess that in the question, like I, I, you know, like I, we are, like you said, we are not the only people to say it. Um, and I think that one of the things that has been interesting in terms of a way to think about Silicon Valley, right, which is that Silicon Valley has always sold these types of advances as convenience, right? They don't sell them as like work can always reach you. Like I remember there are all these. BlackBerry commercials or Verizon commercials when the BlackBerry was out and it would be like a dad on a beach or a mom on a beach and her kids would be like playing in the sand and she would always be like, oh, I can um, I can answer emails from the beach and so I can have more leisure time, right? Like that's how it's sold to you. But obviously that ends up not being true and we have these iterations of the smartphone and apps in which like basically our lives are invaded all the time, including Slack or whatever. And it it's worse and worse and worse. And in most places, you can't actually opt out of them, right? Like uh, when I totally. worked at Vice, I actually tried. I was like, I'm not going to be on Slack. And it didn't work. Like, I mean, it would have been so dickish of me to be the only person not on Slack when people are trying to produce a television show and yeah, yeah. they actually need to make fast decisions. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. In some ways, what Silicon Valley is trying to do is like reinvent that one innovation, right, of the smartphone over and over and over again. And like this one just feels like a smartphone that you wear on your head. Totally. (laughs) And so I don't really understand it. Like, I don't quite get what the big advance is. Now, overall, I do think it's pretty dark to have the big feature be that you can flip between like work and seeing the world, right? Um, Or like there's all this shit where people are like, oh, one of the game changers I saw on Twitter was like somebody saying, um, showing like somebody cooking, right? Mm -hmm. And the person was looking at two pots and one of them had one timer over the top of them and one of them had one timer over the other side of it, right? And they're like, the game has changed, right? Like I now know, (laughs) I now know when to shut up each God. (laughs) I was like, that's crazy. You know, like 
how is that game changing? You have to wear a stupid headphone. Like you, the the trade off is you wear this headset all the time while cooking, getting so fucking can, steam all over it. You know? Yeah, yeah. You can't so that you can't because you can't actually keep track of when the pasta is ready. Like, come on, like who can't keep track of who when the pasta is ready? Totally. So wild. yeah, I don't re- I don't quite see it. With this thing, um, the second thing is that it is wildly expensive. It is thirty five hundred dollars. Now we don't have to discuss that this, that much because I assume that Apple envisions a world in which it goes down to a thousand dollars, just like the iPhone. Yeah. And even though you know you can talk all about cell phone inequality or whatever, most people in America at this point have some form of a smartphone, right? Um, so um, I don't know the. Uh, from a philosophical standpoint, I do think that there is an interesting thing that uh, that was done. You sent me this uh, article in the or this essay in the New Yorker by Jerron Lanier. Do you know who Jerron Lanier is uh, overall? No, not beyond the little uh, biographical snippet she gave in the piece. Yeah, Jerron Lanier is an interesting guy in that he was around for a very long period of time. Um, sort of making a lot of breakthroughs. I, I don't know how involved he was in all these breakthroughs, but he's somebody who gets a lot of credit for a lot of stuff, right? Involving um, early VR, different ways of thinking. But throughout it, he's been sort of this tech philosopher. And very recently, um, over the last few years, he's one of those people who has come out and said, and I would say his case for it is much better than some of these other people, right? Where he just says, look, I know the architecture of this stuff. I know why it's built and none of you should be on social media. It's like the most destructive thing in the world, right? Mm So um, in some ways, he is like a tech futurist or a thinker about things like the singularity or whatever, but he is also like deeply skeptical of a lot of the narratives that Silicon Valley portrays. And the interesting thing about him, obviously, is that he has a credibility given his past and all the stuff that he's worked on to have an opinion about this as opposed to like, Oh, I don't know, somebody like me who's just like, Twitter makes me mad and therefore tech is bad, right? Like, it's yeah. like that's that's less of an interesting perspective. Um, but I wanted to read you a few sections from this and I want us to have a nice, deep philosophical conversation. And in this, it's he's describing uh, the early days of VR and his work in it, right? At some point, he worked for Atari, the video game company, and then he and some of his friends left to do early VR in the 1980s. What's interesting about that is that included everything from like putting on giant headsets to see if you could play an Atari game and make it feel like you were immersed in it to stuff like the Nintendo Power Glove, right? Which I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but like was like basically like a thing that you wore that had little buttons on it and if you waved it around, it's like precursor to the Wii. In... In retrospect, it was kind of amazing technology that that existed back then, you know, but um, it wasn't very effective. I remember I tried playing Mike Tyson's punch out with it once. It was a disaster. But um, (laughs) all right. So this is uh, Jerron Lanier talking about the early days, which is that he said the hope was to make VR a place for spontaneous invention. Virtual reality would allow groups of people to, quote, play the world into existence on virtual devices that resembled musical instruments. Instead, we now talk about speaking the world to in, into existence using AI. It would be at like a lo- social lucid dream. In the intervening decades, VR has thrived at two extremes in the quest for, quote, killer apps. It has long been an established industrial technology. If you've flown, ridden, or sailed in a factory-built vehicle in the last 30 years, virtual reality may have played a central role. It's been used to design surgical procedures and train surgeons ever since our first uh, stimulated gallbladder at Stanford Med some three decades ago. 
Boeing, Ford, and many other companies started using VR for design in the early days as well. And then there are the visionary, mystical, and philosophical applications. VR can be a way of exploring the nature of consciousness, relationships, bodies, and perceptions. In other words, it can be art. VR is most fun when approached that way. In between the two extremes lies a mystery. What role may VR play in everyday life? The question has lingered for generations and is still open. When you look at the Apple uh, Vision Pro, like where where do you think it falls within this sort of uh, you know like rubric that that Jerome Lanier has has set up here? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think. Um it's not pushing toward the spectrum of art, I would say. I mean, it seems like it's definitely more in the like um, realm of the mundane, right? I mean, as you pointed out, I also like to have a beer and watch football and tweet. Uh, and it, you know, I can do that just fine without the mediation of a, you know, ski goggles. Um, but it does seem that the things people are excited about and the ways people are using it are just, um, facets of everyday life that are weirdly just replicated through this VR experience. Right. right. Um, and so, and I think that's what unsettles me the most about it. I think, um, and that's not to say, I think it's going to be, you know, explode and there's going to be a huge uptake and, and whatever else, but, um, it, it does seem to just be, um, people seem to be excited about the just like the replication of things they're already doing. Um, and so it's not as like, if people were excited about, you know, watching sports or video games, you know, or whatever, I think that would be one thing, but I know I keep coming back to this, but there is something um, unsettling about how people um, just want to go about their whole days wearing it. Right. There was that guy who I'm forgetting his name. I'm sure you remember, but um, did the video about that. Yeah. Did the video walking around New York and he was like, you know, there's this moment where suddenly you forget if you wear it long enough that you're like wearing this thing and like your experience like you're not experiencing, you know, virtual reality lacquered over the real world, but you're just experiencing the headset as your reality, you know? Um, and so I don't know, it does seem like it's moving toward that, uh, you know, the mundane and the sort of everyday, but in a, a really sort of disturbing fashion. Um, I'm reading this book right now by Anne Kornbla, Um, that's called Immediacy. It's like a big um, critical theory book that just came out that everyone is talking about, but it's really, really good. And one of her, um, her sort of basic thesis is that critical distance has collapsed over the last several decades, right? She's thinking about how we've moved on from postmodernism and she kind of makes the point, this isn't the only one she makes, but that we used to have all these like mediating institutions, like third parties that were existed to mediate between us and the world, right? So if you think about something like a newspaper as a mediating institution, those are totally collapsing right now. And what's replacing them is Facebook and TikTok and social media where people can curate their news. And there's, you know, like you can just pick like almost mirror what kind of information sources you want back to, right? You don't have to rely on some third party to do that curating for you. And mm. there's something like that to me here where it's, you know, it's this, uh, people seem to be using it to have the same kind of everyday experience of watching sports and having a beer and tweeting and doing their work, right? Except any kind of actual distance is totally collapsed and it's just right in your face as a kind of immersive experience. Um, yeah, I don't know. I really do find it unsettling. And I think, um, 
I think this New Yorker piece is right. I mean, there's this great line um, that actually reminded me of that immediacy book um, where they say, uh, the definition of people must be one of apartness. We must put people on pedestals or they'll drown, right? The sense that we need like, yeah, some like distance and not just like have like the whole of the world right in our face. I don't know. Um, Yeah. What did you think of the piece? Oh, I love. I I like. I really like Jaron Lanier. I think that he's like sometimes like you know. I don't know. I I find myself by impulse being very suspicious when somebody who's very wealthy who worked in tech now says don't you know goes on something like a TED talk and says this is why the internet's bad. Trust me, guys. I made a billion dollars from it. You know, like I'm very suspicious because it always feels like that person is probably out of ideas, right? And is somewhat and has decided to pick this lane. Now there are many examples of that exact whole thing. But Lanier is much more of an honest uh, inner blockuter and in all of this, right? Like he's somebody who I think is has thought about these things. And what I found the most interesting thing about this piece, this is not to criticize the piece, obviously. I work at this publication. I shouldn't criticize it. But I think that it's something that I will bring up just as a reader was that it felt kind of inconclusive in a lot of ways, or at least ambivalent and not in a bad way. I, th- I thought in an interesting way. And what she was basically saying, look, and I agree with this, which is that and there are VR experiences that are supposed to be completely out of body and that they're supposed to expand the mind in the same way that perhaps psychedelics do, right? Like, can you make a VR machine that simulates somebody, what it would be like to fly, right, as yeah, a yeah. human being, right? Or is there a separate world that you can set up that is an alternative to our world that might be better in a lot of ways, might, you know, reduce people's pain in some ways? Like, is that is that a way, right? Can we leave our bodies for these things? And two things that he says there is like, A, he still believes in that, that the utility of that type of AI is interesting and something worth pursuing. But B, that he always thought of AI as being this experience that you do for a small period of time and then you reconnect with the world, right? That it would be a a temporary escape. You put the headset on and then it's over. And then once the experience is over, it's over, similar to, you know, I don't know, taking... DMT or something like that, right? Um, And the thing about the Apple thing, and I think that this is one of the problems with Silicon Valley right now, which is basically like there is this calculation that is being done at all times, which is like, this thing needs to be on this person's head for this amount of time for it to be profitable, right? Um, Like you can't just have something be awesome for two minutes, right? Totally. (laughs) And then the person puts it down. To maximize the tension economy and the amount of eyeballs that are on this thing on any given piece of media that is monetized in itself, right? And Apple obviously very famously doesn't develop any of these third worst apps by itself, right? These quote killer apps that he calls, they just depend on third parties to do it. That those third parties have their own incentives, right? Uh, financial incentives. And what a lot of those are going to be based on how much they can prove that people have this fucking thing on their head, right? Um and that is the logic uh, that guides what Lernier says, calls the mystery, which is what role might VR play in everyday life, right? The answer, at least with the Apple Vision Pro, is that it is not going to actually change much of anything, but it will create small conveniences or seeming conveniences that will make it indispensable part of your life because you will up your efficiency in knowing when the pasta is boiled. And we won't tell you what all that added efficiency actually yields, right? Uh, it is like, okay, well now, since you didn't boil the pasta for nine minutes, 
instead of the eight minutes because we put this fucking timer above the pot. You can spend that extra minute with your child at the beach, right? Like that's, sort of the, the, that's, that's the cell that they always give. And Lanier is right in pointing out that that cell is crazy, right? Like that's like, that has nothing to do with virtual reality or like the expanding of consciousness. It is literally just like doing the same attention box shit that the smartphone does and then putting it right on your face. Um, and I just think that right now at a time when a lot of people I think are quite like, I think we're reaching, actually, I'm curious about your thoughts about this. Like, in my opinion, it seems like we're reaching this crisis point with cell phone addiction, right? That mm-hmm. people are really unhappy with the amount of time they spend, but they can't break away from it, right? Like, the, it's an actual addiction and that some, like, we're either going to just be fully pulled into lives where we just stare at screens all day, or we're there's going to be a real break, like a real sort of social movement away from this stuff. And I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I don't know. What do you think? Like, where, where are we with that? Like something you think about a lot in terms of science fiction, I think. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the smartphone thing, I think there is um, like, I have buddies who have flip phones. Like they're very um, not even in a Luddite way. They just like, don't uh, like the sort of attention economy of a, of a smartphone. And I think um, there's some, I mean, there, I think there's been a resurgence of, of like, people making flip phones for that reason. Um, Right. But I do think like no one has a good opinion of smartphones. Right. Um, Like, and I think that's bipartisan too. Like on the right and left, I think people kind of feel the same way. People don't like big tech in general is also pretty bipartisan, you know? Um, And that gives me some optimism. I think, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's definitely something that preoccupies a lot of my time. Um, and, you know, I think with the rise of AI to one thing I think about a lot, right, is um, AI is already producing novels. Um, and my understanding is the big five publishing companies are already investing and in, like looking into what AI can do for like in terms of churning out, you know, like cheap mystery novels or whatever without paying authors big advances. Um, right. And at a certain point, I think this like is a total misrecognition of why people go to something like a novel, right? Which is because it's written by a person um, and you're like having an experience of like another human having written something and seeing that like other people think things like I think, right? Um, And so there's a point with a lot of this tech that I have to suspect will reach a point of saturation. Like, do people really want to read novels written by AI? Like, doesn't that obviate the point in a certain way? And I think we might see, um, and this is one of my like, minor pet conspiracies. But the thing I worry about is the sort of bifurcating of um, products into AI versions, whether it's like novels or news media or whatever, and then more expensive sort of like human certified bespoke versions that cost more, right? And so, you know, plebes get AI direct for their TV and their novels, and then people who can afford it pay for like the authentic human thing, almost like we pay (laughs) for organic food, you know? Um, Right. But I do think I tend to think there'll be a backlash against a lot of this, um, you know, against smartphones, against AI. I think people are sick of technology. I think people don't feel positively about big tech in general, except for a few sort of people on Twitter. Um, And I don't know. I think something I tend to think something has to give at some point, but maybe it won't. There's a variety of bills going around, right? Um, sort of in Florida and uh, Utah, other places, and in all these bills, they try and legislate that children under the age of 16 should not be on social media. 
And the reason why they do it is they say that it allow it opens them up for like sexual mm-hmm. uh, exploitation or whatever. Recently, Mark Zuckerberg went in front of Congress as well, right? Um, and actually, the TikTok guy went in front too. There was that sort of very viral exchange where Tom Cotton kept asking him if he was Chinese, and he keeps going, oh, yeah, "I'm yeah, from yeah. Singapore." <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "Wait, are like, are you part of the CCP?" He's like. Mr. Senator, I'm from Singapore. And he just keeps Mr. going at it and just like, that's like, I'm sorry. Like, this is one of those things where like every, like you, like you're, you're, you're banned for who is convinced by this is so, so narrow, you know, but keep going, Tom Cotton, you know, like, it's fine. You could just embarrass yourself. But, um, you know, the point of all of this was that, you know, there is like a right wing right now. It's mostly right wing. Right. But it's slightly. But I think in terms of the voting population, it's quite bipartisan, which is just like this question of whether or not all this technology needs to be regulated in some ways or if it's harming society. And um, yeah, I agree. Like what? Like, I don't know what the backlash looks like, though. And if I knew, then I think that I would be much more much happier because I would just join the backlash, you know, mm-hmm. because there's a story in the times a few like maybe six months ago about like uh, a group of private school kids at I think it was Berkeley Carroll school or something like that. Right. One of these fancy Brooklyn private schools. And they had all decided to not have phones. Right. Like they mm-hmm. had decided they're going to embark on that. And that was a cool culture story and people like them. And it's like, Oh, the teens are all right type of stuff. But like, I genuinely don't care what private school New York city kids are doing in terms totally. of trend setting. <laughs> and so like, is that, but is that what it's going to look like? You know, or is it going to be communities of people who collectively decide that they don't want that? Like, is there going to be a, one thing that I've always theorized about, which is like, you know, like there will be like a rural movement, right. Where people sort of collectively decide to go live on communes and stuff like that again. Right. That um, I think that Buddhism and, and sort of Eastern philosophy will have a resurgence in a lot of ways, because I feel like people feel so disconnected from the world that religion might start to replace stuff when the internet finally runs out of ideas. Right. Like, because the, churn that is happening right now i don't know have you used google recently for example yeah like do you use google like it sucks now right like it is like qualitatively worse than it was five years ago like it's almost unusable for most things unless you're like like basically what you're seeing is a bunch of scammy companies using seo and using google crawler to try and like maximize getting to the top of the page that's all you see when you google you're not seeing any type of algorithmic like this is for you the customer it's just a fight between a bunch of like shitty people trying to game an algorithm right um that's going to start happening with everything i think everything's going to be much less usable you know and then at some point like people will just decide that everything sucks too much maybe or maybe they won't, you know, maybe they'll just stick on in the same way that you and I stick on on Twitter, even though Twitter is like fucking horrible right cool. now. And yet we're still there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, my my friend Leif Weatherby talks, he does a lot of tech stuff and he talks about this. He has, had an essay in the Daily Beast that I forget the name of that he wrote last year. But that was like making the point that a lot of like what passes as innovation in tech is just aesthetics um, and often just like sci-fi aesthetics, but without like functional improvement. So like one of the examples is like the Tesla door where you have to hit a fucking button and the door opens and it's like in no way an improvement over like a traditional door handle. It's just like the aesthetics of innovation minus the substance of it. And I think that's what we're seeing across the board with a lot of shit i mean phones i just got a new phone um i fish a lot and the salt water has destroyed my phone and so i needed a new phone um and uh but 
oh, it was like such a letdown. I was like, oh, I, and I haven't gotten a new phone in like five years. It's like, this is the same fucking phone, you know? Oh, yeah, and I got yeah, like yeah. the newest iPhone, you know? Yeah. And so like, I do think there's just <laughs> was like- Was yours made out of titanium? That's my favorite thing. It's like- Oh, no, no, no. It's not, or maybe it drive, is. I fucking when I drive back from surfing, there's this giant billboard and it says, iPhone 15, titanium. And like- <laughs> Like, okay. Yeah, it's like you know Don Draper with uh with uh, right. Lucky Strike saying it's toasted, and we're like, what is? Who cares what it's made? This phone is made out of, right? Totally. Like, why I'm would I care that it's made? Drop out of it from a construction video. site. Like, <laughs> <laughs> totally. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. No, um, no, I don't know. I just like I think. I mean, surely at some point people are going to ca- like catch on. You know, like I think. I mean, are we really just going to keep having the same iPhone with a marginally better camera ad infinitum, you know? Um, yeah. And maybe the answer is maybe. Um, and like you, I'm not like optimistic about the various sort of Luddite trends of New York City's sparkling youth. But nonetheless, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Would I think you join like a no cell phone commune if one existed and like, you know, like, uh, you know, your, your family wanted to join. And you were given like once a month, you could go check your email or something like that. Is that something that would be appealing to you? You know, it's a really good question. One of the things I think about a lot is given that I'm an academic is um, like, I don't think I would have been able to be an academic before the internet because um, like before the internet, you had to like go do archival research and like sort through dusty tomes. Like I work on the 19th century a lot and I would have had to be in a fucking library in England, you know, sorting through a bunch of old shit. Um, And, you know, now all that stuff is digitized and I, you know, like I don't have the attention span to like do that kind of like nitty gritty, like in the tombs archival work, you know? Um, And so like, I I do think a lot about the way that um, like my temperament only lines up with my work precisely because of like all these changes brought about by technology and the internet. But at the same point, like I'd be very happy not having a smartphone um, and like just going somewhere to do my, you know, interneting for work or whatever. I mean, I got onto Twitter really late in the Twitter game. I made a Twitter account this summer um, and it's like, it sucks. You know, like I don't like being on Twitter does make you miserable. Uh, And so like I, it not has not improved my net happiness in the least. Uh, And so yeah, I don't know. I but maybe it is like such a strong addiction. Um, there's a philosopher Martin Heidegger. He makes this great point, and he says, um, you know, addiction uh, is not dependency on some particular thing like alcohol or cigarettes or whatever. He says um, addiction is a reduction in your choices about what you do in the world, right? So if you can't get through a movie without leaving for a cigarette, right? Like that's a reduction in the kind of choices you have. And he makes the point that that's like, that's what addiction is. It's like not being able to freely choose stuff. Um, And I think, you know, that's like stuff with smartphones, like not being able to get through an experience without checking your email. And and I don't know how easy that's going to be to break, but um, yeah, I would certainly, that kind of thing doesn't not appeal to me, I suppose. Um, But I think think you're right about the flourishing of new age and like the return of Eastern religions and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think we're already seeing that in some ways and it will definitely intensify. Yeah, I know. I just think it's like, I think we're almost there. We're like a year away, right? The the idea of in which the, the look, I don't disagree that that type of information being widely available is very useful, right? Uh, like certain archives and academic knowledge being widely 
available is very useful. But I think that the, I don't know, I, I just to go back to the thing that we were talking about, like what I always think about is like how much shit there is on the internet and how most of what we figure out is the most of what we come across every day from the internet is absolute shit. Like if you Google a recipe, for example, just see what you find, right? You just see pages and pages of shit. Right? And yep. it's not real recipes. It's just shit that's gamified to go to the top of the Google recipes. Now you can avoid that, right? And how do you avoid that? Well, you pay $6 a month for the New York Times cooking app, right? Which is super um, Right, right. Which is great. I think the cooking app is wonderful. I have my own beast with very specific cooks there but that just actually shows how committed i am to the app right but not everyone can afford six dollars a month right now if i was in college for example or in graduate school and you would ask me to pay six dollars a month for a recipe app i would have been like like no way i'm just going to deal with this shit right i'm going to just try and find the best of the shit same thing with academic information right like it's all paywall Right. Like mm-hmm. that's why Aaron Schatz did what he did. Right. Um, all those archives. Right. That um, maybe they're open to the public, but a lot of them are also paywalled to just university students or to people who are researchers or who can prove some sort of university connection. And I guess it's just like we're entering a world where most people are going to just experience shit. I agree with you that I think that there will be this premium tier where you can opt out of just like eating shit all the time. But that what you're probably eating from that source is like, you know, you have a subscription to the New York Times, you have like this sort of elite tier of apps, right? Like they're not like you just have to think of them as apps, right? Your your apps are better than the than like your poor neighbors apps. apps. (laughs) But in the end, like you're still eating shit all the time, right? And so like it's like um, I, I, I. I find that idea to be wildly appealing. And I guess I, you know, I recently turned 44 years old and I just think about things uh, in terms of a little bit more in terms of mortality over the past few years. And I was like, I just can't spend the next 20 years of my life until I'm actually old staring at this fucking phone, you know? Yeah. Um, somebody give me an alternative, like any alternative to it, because I will tell you something because of my job and because of my temperament, I can't actually voluntarily break myself away from this phone. You know, I just can't do it. I'm never going to do it. I'm just going to be 65. I'm going to be like this brain, like uh, just like brain damaged piece of shit. Who's going (laughs) to be asking, texting my teenage daughter. If she saw this meme on the internet, (laughs) it's just going to be, it's going to be horrible, but I would love to be, saved from it and i guess what i find interesting is just like those alternatives just have not presented themselves right that's why i was so interested in talking to you about extinction stuff because it's just like is there an alternative presented there i don't know like i guess you go dive in the cold main water at three in the morning with a wetsuit perhaps that is your perhaps that's (laughs) your alternative that's definitely what it's for yeah. yeah Yeah, anytime you can not have your phone on. That's why I enjoy surfing because it's like you can't really bring your phone with you, you know. No, I mean dudes, that's one. Yeah. No, I mean that's the thing about fishing at night is like it, it's impossible to I mean I have photos, but it's like it's hard to get photos of it's fucking at night and like <laughs> there's like wind and surf and it's you know and so like there is and there's like a whole cottage industry of like young people in their 20s and 30s on the internet like posting sort of fish photos and stuff um but it's like very hard to get like 
a good photo. It's I don't just I, I rarely bother bother unless it's like a really special fish. I'll try to take a photo and you don't want to leave them out of the water long. And um, but that is what I like about it is that there's like um, it's not simply that like, oh, I'm choosing for this experience not to be technologically mediated. There's just like no real way for it to be by nature of the experience, you know, <laughs> um, and that's like definitely an appeal. Yeah, the surfing has become in some ways strangely and we can move. We'll move on to the second quote after this. I don't want to talk about surfing and wetsuiting all the time, although I, I do find wetsuiting be so fascinating. One day we'll do an episode on it. But, oh, yeah, um, sure. you know, there's this I, I noticed this thing where one of the spots that I surf at has like a lot of cameras at it. Right. And you can watch it through Surfline and um, you can rewind the cameras and you can see yourself surfing. Right. If you are in front of the cameras. And I did this a couple of times and there are no photos of me. There's one photo of me surfing back from like 2013 where this guy was standing on the cliffs taking photos of everybody. Um, and he got a photo of me like catching a backside wave or something like that. I don't even remember. But uh, there, that's the only documented digital evidence, right, that I actually do this thing. And um, now like I can watch the waves that I caught right at this one spot. And I find myself doing it despite the fact that, like, I, first of all, I don't look like I'm a great surfer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's nothing I would ever clip and post on the internet, for yeah, example. Yeah. It's hilarious. Because the first response would be like, this dude has been surfing how long? <laughs> and he looks like that. <laughs> but the second thing is, like, I just find it, like, this weird thing where it's just like, okay, even though I know that I do this thing because I want to get away from this type of narcissism, right, that it allows me for a second to stop being on this device in which I am the main character of this device and every story of every app, I'm the main character of those apps, right, that it just is so irresistible to do that. and. Yeah. um I don't know. It's something that I think about all the time. And I'm just like, I need to leave society in some sort of significant way. But yeah, once again, somebody tell me how to do it and I'll do it. The second part that Lanier talks about here, I think that is interesting, is that he writes, uh, this is a much more philosophical thing. I'm very curious what you think just in terms of your, you know, everything that you've read in terms of science fiction. It is impossible to judge technology without a sense of its purpose, and its only plausible purpose is to benefit people, or perhaps animals, or the overall ecosystem of the planet. In any case, if we pursue technologies that make it hard to delineate the beneficiaries, for instance, for instance by blending brains into robotics, not to cure a disease, but just because it seems cool, then we make the very idea of technology absurd. The central question of the technological future is how to identify the people who are supposed to benefit from technology, especially if they seem to have melted into it. If people aren't special, how can we act in a way that benefits people? We can't. The principles of ethics, design, and even technology itself will become nonsense. What can that specialness be? It must be something that is not technologically accessible since technology expands unpredictably. It's a little mystical. The definition of people must be one of apartness we must now put people on pedestals or they will drown now you read part of that before but i just want to get a sense of like this idea of technology not really having a sense of purpose and that that makes it absurd like what do you think about that 
Yeah, I think it's totally right. Um, a lot of my academic work is actually on the philosophical problem of um, nihilism and meaninglessness, because um, historically, questions about human extinction were really wrapped up with questions about human meaning, right? Like, if we can go extinct, right. does that mean our species means nothing? Um, so, like, nihilism is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And Hannah Arendt has this um, great quote about nihilism, and I'm paraphrasing. Um, but she says, like, nihilism is what happens when you believe that the use of use is use. So, like, the utility of something is for some other utility that is for some other utility. And there's, like, not actually a human end to it, right? As in there's not, like... Like some benefit that people are getting. It's just like this, you know, regressive uh, feedback doom loop of just, you know, using something to use something to use something. And I think that's kind of um, what it seems like he's getting at here, right? Like what happens when we have technology that we're building just because it's cool. And I think so much of Silicon Valley is driven by it just like, let's do this because it seems neat. It's like an aesthetic project, I think, in ways that have become really untethered from like the use value in human terms of that project. You know, like when you look at the fucking Cybertruck, right? Like, I mean, and you see all these images of, you know, Musk's Cybertruck and people are, you know, shooting rifles at it and the bullets bounce off. And it's like, what the fuck do you need that for? You know, it's just, <laughs> but it like looks cool, you know? Um, and yeah, it just does seem that, and maybe this is just nostalgia, but it does seem like a prior generation of tech people used to think um, that like technology was going to do things and solve things. And there are still people in the AI set and stuff that are like, AI is going to solve, you know, climate change and it's going to solve this and that and figure out the mysteries of space travel or whatever. But there's like definitely also just a, like, isn't this neat? Like, what if we hooked up brains to computers? Like, what would happen? It's exciting. Um, yeah. I don't know. It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite comedies is Ricky Bobby, uh, the Talladega Nights movie. And there's this like moment where he's like, we uh, put a he's like, I heard we put a pig heart in a man. And the guy's like, oh, did he live? And he's like, oh, absolutely not. But I think it's neat that we're trying things like that. You know, and that's how I feel like a, a lot about like Silicon Valley. You know, it's like, oh, no, it doesn't work. But it's like, isn't it exciting? Uh, I don't know. What did you think? Well, the question that I have around this is like, look, these things like he, he is. It is not the fact that these things do not have a stated purpose that helps humanity right now, for example, around a, uh, AI, right? Like you have somebody like Sam Altman talking a lot about a uh, universal basic in income that could mm -hmm. come out of it that would solve inequality because AI would be doing most of the work. Grimes went on about this too, like on her, you know, she was like, communists, I have a, I have a solution for you or I have a proposal for you. What if AI ends up doing all the work and then we have communism because everybody just gets to sit around and they get a check, collective checks, like kind of like living in Alaska, you know, how you've lived in Alaska, you get like a check. <laughs> Do you so really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone's like basically living in Alaska at this point, right? Um, they get a check and that basically human labor is gone, right? That's that's their and then that and then the subset of that is effective altruism, right? Which is that okay, well then what do we do with all this money? How do we most benefit mankind? And in what ways can technology help us actually locate what the problems are instead of using uh, you know, corrupt NGOs and whatever like that. And like, you know, the mass media's propaganda machine to tell us what the problems are. Like, how do we, is there a clearer way that we can assess what the problems are, right? My question about that is like, what happens to technology when those narratives of helping the world become absurd to the vast majority of people, not that they're not stated, but that nobody actually believes that totally. Silicon Valley is working in a good way. And that 
seems to be the point where we're approaching right now, right? Like it's like there's such mass suspicion of these places. Politicians seem to understand that bashing big tech is like good for their careers, right? And that um, the public is getting exhausted with being online all the time. And that will, like, I agree with Lanier in the sense that I just don't think that technology can exist if there's no, if it's just, hey, isn't this thing cool? Like, that's what a concept car is, right? It's like something that you see an Instagram ad for and you're like, oh, that was cool, but, you know, who cares, <laughs> right? I'm not buying that thing. Right? Totally. Um, and that uh, I just, I think that we're at that point where the stated ways in which it benefits people are increasingly weird, right? Like a UBI based on like a future where no one has a job is like a very weird vision of the future and a very weird vision for how humanity would be better that I think most people probably don't think is either A, viable or B, good in itself. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know. That's my, that's my sense of that, which is just like, well, maybe we're there, right? Like maybe we're there not because technology has or the titans of technology have consciously decided to stop stating what the benefit to society is. Maybe it's just that we're at a point where people don't listen or don't believe that vision at all. Whereas before, I think they did believe it's better if the world's connected. Oh, wow. I can talk to my friend from high school that I haven't talked to in 20 years on Facebook, right? Like that's a good, um, I don't think they believe this in the same way. Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. I think you really hit the nail on the head that um, no one outside of like the cultists of Silicon Valley really believes the like bill of goods they're being sold, you know. Um, And what seems to me interesting is that it and I think you're right that there's going to be a flourishing of like back to I think we're just going to repeat the 1970s. Like I think we're going to see back to the land. I think we're going to see the rise of Eastern religions. We're already seeing it in terms of other new age stuff. Um, But I also think like there's the thing that's interesting about it is like, I think the broad (laughs) sweeping sentiment isn't just like Luddism. I think it's just like, I don't trust these people. They've given us no reason to trust them. The like claims they're making, as you point out, are like increasingly bizarre, outlandish and implausible. Um, And so it's like just a weird pageant. I mean, that's how I felt about AI for the last year um, where it's like, oh, like the singularity approaches, blah, blah, blah. And now, of course, like Sam Altman and all those people are like, well, actually, turns out there are some material constraints that are like limiting growth of LLMs, but we're sure they're right around the corner. You know, I don't know. Right, right. They're definitely walking back the speed of their vision a lot yeah yeah Yeah. you know and um, they're also walking back the scale of what they want to achieve right which is like they're kind of like like i don't know i always joked around that basically open ai was super clippy right like the market especially since it's associated with, with uh with microsoft um that there would just be a clippy assistant that you can ask anything for I don't know. It's uh, I use I use ChatGPT quite a bit, um, just for like basically just screwing around. But also, you know, sometimes I get stuck about certain things, and I don't ask it to write. I just ask it questions as prompts and see yeah. what it says. You know, and um, I don't know. It can't like it hasn't gotten any better. Totally, and I don't understand why it would get better. Right, just because of the constraints that that. Uh, Altman is talking about. And so I don't know. I wonder, I don't think that it's fair to say that that moment has passed already, but man, they need like a killer thing that comes out to like, wow, the public again, you know, in the same way that they did with chat GPT. Like there is what they have created is this constant need for revolutionary 
moments and it's just you know it's hard it's like the when you can't sell the moral side of it too um crypto had this problem too and that's why the mainstream adoption was hard because basically if you ask why is this good other than my own personal wealth right you get a whole bunch of Austrian school economics stuff about Ludwig van Mises and deflationary currency and the e- evils of fiat currency. <laughs> and you're just yeah. like, well, what are you talking about? What are you <laughs> talking about? <laughs> yeah. Or like NFTs, dude, I still don't understand what an NFT is. I've had oh, so many God. people try to explain this to me. I just, I can't. I don't know. Listen, I'll admit, I speculated so hard on NFTs, you know, because I have a gambling <laughs> problem. <laughs> <laughs> and the concept of it was interesting, but the yeah. and the actually the argument that people made about NFTs was much more pragmatic than crypto, right? Like crypto is like full on like financial revolution and erase yeah. all borders and make like uh like you know destroy all institutions because institutions are the ones that are controlling fiat currency and we can do it all ourselves with technology, right? NFT was basically like. The, the use case was like, wouldn't it be cool if artists could own the licenses to their work through an NFT, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, like, wouldn't it be cool if you could make a, an artist? It was all based on like basically artists getting screwed by auction houses type of thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that the problem with that is uh, it's not a very wide vision for many, people, for many people. It's like good for artists and musicians, I guess. And, you know, for the most part, most of them are participated in the NFT economy with very, very few exceptions. I mean, every every auction house, every museum bought into that thing, you know, because yeah. of the gold rush. So for them to like turn around and say that was all stupid, I don't know. I, I sometimes find myself a little bit skeptical of how stupid they actually thought it was. Um, all right. The last part of the linear thing that we'll read, and then we'll talk a little bit about antisocial technology. Um, this is the end of the piece. Uh, another urgent question is whether people can enjoy the storied reality of finitude. Uh, is that how you pronounce that word? After oh, finitude. Co- finitude? I think so. Finitude. Yeah. After coming down from the high of fake infinity, can being merely human suffice? Can the everyday miracle of the real world be appreciated enough? Or will the future of culture only be viral? Will all markets become Ponzi-like fantasies? Will people reject physics forever the moment we have technology that's good enough to show us that uh, that's good enough to allow us to pretend it's gone? Virtual reality can take us either way. I still experience VR as a beacon of humanism. Maybe others will too. Um, yeah, I was just curious. What are your thoughts about these questions that he's asking here, right? Um, like, are we going to be replacing everything with viral culture, right? Like we're kind of in that now, but, um, and, you know, is every market just going to be basically the NFT market, wild speculation or meme stocks, right? Like, um, yeah, let me know. what. The, what were you yeah, I don't know, man. I think, you know, um, I'm a big fan of Mark Fisher, um, sort of recently, semi-recently deceased philosopher, and he wrote this book called Capitalist Realism. And he says, the defining feature of capitalism in our present moment is that you can't like imagine anything outside of it. So we've like lost the ability, particularly with the collapse of the Soviet Union, to even imagine a different 
like economy, even in like minor terms, you know, um, but like that kind of stranglehold um, is also part of our cultural imagination, you know, and it feels really impossible, I think, to even imagine um, what a sort of culture would look like that is not like meme viral and trend based, because it seems like even as that's like really recent, it just seems like we're so sunk into it. Um, that book immediacy I was talking about earlier, I mean, this is one of the points that makes as well as like, the future just seems impossible to fathom. It seems the way she calls it beclouded, you know, like there's just no sense as to like what comes after this. So we just imagine everything is like this in perpetuity. Um, and so, and maybe that is the case. I don't know. I think um, I do like the point about, um, you know, VR is a beacon of humanism. Like I'm not anti-tech, I think, um, particularly with like stuff going on in climate, I think we've so missed the boat on that, that like embracing some kind of tech is the only possible solution. Um, so I'm not an anti-tech person, but at the same time, I am like somebody who believes pretty firmly in like a kind of humanism. Um, and that is one of the things I really liked about this piece where they're like, you know, like tech should be in the service of people and it rarely seems to be. And it should also like celebrate human experience in a certain way. Right. And, um, it seems like he thinks that's like what VR at its best can do is like, look at this cool stuff we can do and these experiences we can have that are very different from our real world. And that it's like right. part, part about celebrating human creativity. And then like the tech we get is not about that at all. Um, and it's like instead just about this dark replication of everything we already have, except an inch from our face, you know? And um, so I liked this a lot. You know, I do think, um, in general, one of my sort of hobby horses is like the need for a, a new kind of humanism. A thing that frustrates me when I talk about extinction, for example, and like one of the comments I got really frequently on that New York Times piece was that like, well, what about the animals or like we're in the middle of the sixth grade extinction, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's not that I don't care about any of those things, but it does seem like there's an increasing number of people who just think people suck um, in that like the human species is corrupt and evil and awful, you know, um, right. And like, I don't believe that. And like my response to like, what about the animals? Is that like, that? I, I absolutely care about species loss and all these environmental causes, but I also think people matter more. And like, it's like, I don't think that should be a controversial like thing to think in environmental discourse, but like paralleling this too, like I do think, I don't know. I, I like the point about, um, you know, a beacon, you know, virtual reality is like a, a human achievement rather than just like a, a technological one. Right, right. It's he's talking in some ways here about I think uh whether the real world can continue to exist given the ways in which we are moving, right? Um and what he's asking is a question that Bohr has act, asked quite a bit, right, which is um there's a story that he wrote that I'm totally obsessed with. I think I've written about it like more times than I should, but I write about it all the time. I talk about it all the time. And the story is like Tlon Okbar Orbis Tertius, right? And the Borges story where he talks about there's a discovery of an encyclopedia and in the, the encyclopedia describes a world called Tlon and in Tlon there's no, there are no verbs. I mean, I'm sorry, there are no nouns, right? Like people only talk in adjectives and that uh, it is sort of this unreal space. Now, look, the philosophical questions behind this, there's a whole thing about Berkeley and idealism or whatever, right? But if you think about the story without that type of, background, basically what he's talking about is the dissolving of the existing world through a new type of totally nonsense, but mathematically and logically alluring type of language that comes out, right? And what, to me, it's what he has always been describing is like basically what has happened with the internet, where there is such an alluring world that is 
put out there that ultimately everything else collapses under the weight of this world that has been created, right, in people's brains. And that's, I think, similar to what has happened. And that at the end of that story, right, like there is a passage in which Borges talks about uh, the narrator of the story says, like, you know, I am apart from this. I am in some uh, remote place where I continue to uh, translate Earn Burial by Thomas Brown. And Earn Burial is a Thomas Brown uh, piece about like how underneath all they're digging up these bogs. Right. And they found human urns. Right. And that that sort of shows that the world can continue to go on. Right. It can continue to appear and disappear. But underneath there is a real world, right, in which these urns are still underneath the ground, right? Like the reality does exist in some sort of way. And uh, I think that's the question that Lanier is asking in some sort of way here, right? Which is just like, will the real world or like, will that part of humans continue to exist in a world that we are veering towards right now, right? Of social media, everything that he's skeptical of. And I think that's a very important question to ask right now, because I don't know what the answer is. Like, I don't think that we are uh, that the world that he's describing here is hypothetical. It is the world that we live in right now. All culture is viral. All culture is viral. Right. Like, that's all it is. Like, why did Tracy Chapman sing at the Grammys? Because Luke Combs went viral on TikTok singing a song from 25 years ago. (laughs) Right. (laughs) why is why is why is fast car like back in the news because of because luke combs went viral and then tracy chapman went viral on the grammys right and the what is the grammys the grammys is a way in which people can create a bunch of social media clips right and one of them hopefully goes viral right like that's what it's been in years and years now like i am not arguing that the sanctity of the grammys must be protected against such like you know like encouragement like i don't give a shit about the grammys in fact they'd be great if they didn't exist totally Uh, But, right, the idea that we're not in a place where virality is the only important thing, like culture is just viral, right? Um, Right. All most markets now are Ponzi like fantasies. That's what they are. I mean, look at all this like speculation around crypto. Look at all this speculation in the stock market around everything. Right. Like the greatest thing about the meme stock era during the pandemic was that it exposed that everything is a meme stock at its own level. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everything is GameStop stuff, right? Or GameStop, GameStop stock. Uh, and so, I don't know. I, I guess I just found this to be refreshing in the same ways that I find a lot of people, this stuff to be refreshing. I just don't know what the alternative is outside of just straight up Luddism, you know? Um, do your friends with flip phones, do they feel like liberated from from technology in some ways? Yeah, I mean, a thing like one of them in particular is a really smart guy. One of the things um, he like points out is like, you know, he's like a person with a normal social life. And so he like is not never around technology, you know, and you'll like so I'll have moments where he's like, you know, using someone's like piece of tech. And he's just like, this is nuts. Like this is no wonder people are like, you know, totally mesmerized by these kinds of things. So like, he's interesting to talk to because I think he like still gets the kind of wonder at technology when he uses that the most of us don't have anymore. Um, You know, I have a a newborn and um, recently he noticed the television. And it's like, 
like, you know, he like freaked out. He was so excited. And you can just see like the laser focus. And it's like, oh, this is bad. Like this is not like a normal react. Like this isn't a natural reaction that I'm like witnessing. This is like, like it's like a drug or something. I know it's It's, fucked up, right? It's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't ever, when they're that age, like it's not, I noticed that with my daughter, my son, not so much, but with my daughter, um, the first thing that she like strained to keep looking at was like the TV in her yeah. life, right? Like, and it was at a very young age and uh, um, it was like kind of, it was a different type of attention than every other type of attention. So like, that's what you experience. Yeah, it's fucked up, man. <laughs> totally. And, and that was like, honestly, the first time in a really long time where I was like, oh, like this is right. like actually just like. This is like a whole other order of experience that we've just been totally sanitized to, you know, because you're right. Like, it's an excellent way to put it. Like, I've seen him ha- like give other things attention and it was like a new category of attention. Right. You know, right. I don't know, dude. Uh, yeah. Like, it's fucked up. I don't know. I think everyone should see that. I Honestly, my a lot of my thinking about tech started in those moments, right, where you just notice your children and what they gravitate towards and then you think in very sort of, you know, admittedly self-aggrandizing ways about your own childhood and what you were doing during your own childhood, right? Which is like, I didn't really watch that much TV when I was a kid because my parents wouldn't let me. And so I did spend, I think, a considerable amount of my youth outside. But then at some point, mm-hmm. my parents so- relented and all I did was play Sega Genesis and watch TV like every other kid. Yeah. <laughs> but um, my earlier, certainly, I didn't have much television, right? And so you have this like narcissistic thought like, oh, well, that's what, you know, everything I am. It's because in those early years, I was not watching the idiot box. But and then you want to cut against those expectations. But then when you see something like the, your kid, like kind of like looking at Coco Melon and like being like, oh, my God, this is the only thing I ever want to look at ever again. You're just like, this shit sucks. <laughs> totally. It's so bad. It's the worst shit in the world. Yeah, you'll get it. And then at some point you'll be on a flight, Tyler, and it'll your kid will be screaming and then you'll just shove the iPad in their face and you'll just be like, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> yeah. iPad. Yeah. Oh, That's just how it happens. Um, all right. The last thing uh, I want, you know what? I think maybe that's enough. Did you want to talk a little bit about like the social aspects of this or do you think we covered that? No, I think we covered it. I mean, I think we're on the same page. I, I There is like this deeply antisocial and like also narcissistic like tendency to this, you know? Um, I mean, I've read a lot of Freud and Lacan and psychoanalysis in my life. And, you know, one of the features of narcissism um, that I always find interesting is that it's like not just self-obsession, but it's like seeing the world like a mirror, you know, where like everything is just like reflecting back at you. And one of the things Christopher Lash says about it is that like narcissism is always a defense mechanism, actually, like what appears to be somebody who's really self-absorbed is actually somebody who's like sheltering from the world, which is why they're constantly looking inward, you know, and there's something like narcissistic in that sense to me about the headsets, right? Where you're like closed off from everything and you've just curated this very safe experience for yourself. And you're not like, you know, in the grim grittiness of reality, or at least except in a way that's like very neatly uh, arranged to your liking. I don't know. Like, I do think it's, there's, it's like a, coziness or something like it is it does strike me just like a defense mechanism i mean i can't imagine wanting to be in like a cafe with one of those on my face you know it's just 
Yeah. Uh, like trying to think about the headspace I would need to be in before that kind of experience appeals. It's like actually very sad, you know, and who knows, maybe friend, in two years I will be. I asked my friend about it who bought one of them and I was, uh, just because I, first of all, I like him. And secondly, he's, I think he's, he's who I generally go to to try and find a tech maximalist take about stuff. Right. That's not an idiot. Right. Yeah. yeah. Who's the smart guy who thinks these things. And I was like, well, do you think people would wear it? And he said, as like, do you think the social stigma around it would be too big for it to be adopted? And he said, well, everyone thought AirPods were stupid, but they were awesome. And so now there's no social stigma around it. Right. And the problem with this thing is that it kind of sucks. Right? Yeah. But if it was awesome, then everyone would use it and the social stigma would drop. I don't know if that's true. You know, like I think kind of like uh, there's something very specific about the human experience where if you cover somebody's eyes, yeah, it's like, like people just don't want to talk to you. Right. And I don't know if uh, technology is going to intervene in some sort of way, because I think if it was all this wearable tech shit would be much, you know, more totally impressive. And I just think like there is something about obscuring a human face that is a bridge too far and that I can't actually think about examples of where that isn't true, you know, um, like people wearing a Bluetooth headset, for example. Now, that was very socially stigmatized. Everyone made jokes about it, but people still wore the Bluetooth headset. Um, but that's like their ear, you know, it's like not covering their entire face. Totally. And so I don't think that there's a way to make one of these VR headsets everyday use. And I think what Lanier is talking about is correct, that the future frontiers of VR, what already exists in terms of ways in which help surgeons or like shipbuilders or whatever imagine spaces by putting on a headset. Yeah. And um, this other thing where it is kind of like a DMT trip or whatever, where like you kind of get this, you know, slight isolated vision of another reality that helps expand your mind so that you can operate within this reality. But that makes sense. But obviously, you know, Apple wants something that people wear all day, which is like, uh, you know, in my opinion, crazy, like video games, for example, are a great way to escape, right? If you have a great VR immersive v uh, video game space, I think that's fine. Yeah, totally. But it's weird that Apple didn't, or not weird, but it's just like, kind of like, I don't know, Apple not going that way and being like, what if you wore it all the time? <laughs> and it was huge. What if you wore it all the time? And it's gigantic. Yeah. And everybody like, fucking laughs at you and eventually someone robs you because the thing costs $3,500 I just exactly. sell it <laughs> um, oh, anyway alright well uh, thank you for listening to our show uh, for everyone who doesn't know um, we rely a lot on uh, your contributions to the show it's what keeps it keep going it'll be it's $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com and if you would like to reach out to us, it is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter. I don't really check the Twitter very much, so it's better to email us, but at TTSG pod is the way to do that. Until next week, Tyler, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, man. Cheers.